Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your man. This man is my land. California. The New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream Waters. This man was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 449, recorded on Sunday, November 20th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. In March, April, and the beginning of May of 1886, there was a significant railroad strike in the Old Southwest, which is to say Texas, Arkansas, Missouri, and Kansas and you could argue a little bit into Louisiana, targeted against one of the wealthiest and most infamous of the era's rail and telegraph tycoons, Jay Gould, owner or indirect controller of the Union Pacific, Missouri Pacific, the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas, and previously the Texas and Pacific, then in federal receivership, but with his stock still being the largest, among other lines in the region. Jay Gould was notorious and reviled by much of the general public within his own lifetime. The focus of the labor action ended up being largely on the Missouri Pacific and its erstwhile partner, the Texas and Pacific, under federal management. Unfortunately, as was the case with many major railroad strikes we have covered, the action was undertaken somewhat haphazardly, without solidarity from other unions needed to win, and with little enough planning and coordination to succeed, but far too much advance notice to prevent the effective deployment of strike breakers and state force. Indeed, one reason Jay Gould was so notorious even to his peers was that he always seemed to play every crisis to his advantage and profit, from recessions to Wall Street panics to strikes, and he often precipitated or provoked these crises in the first place on his own timetable to ensure he would come out on top. The Great Southwest Railroad Strike of 1886 seems to have been no exception. Federally appointed receivers of Gould's former Texas and Pacific, closely interlinked to his remaining holdings in the region, took a hard line as well against the strikers, firing them all within days and contending that they had walked off without explanation or formal grievance report. Like many rail executives of the era, these receivers were Civil War veteran officers. As with many bankruptcy situations, earlier union contracts no longer seemed to hold up, frustrating workers. And, despite its size, the strike features all the classic hallmarks of the unsuccessful strikes we've covered previously on the show. Some degree of frustrated spontaneity beyond the control of leadership, the use of government force against the strikers, heaviest participation among certain rail occupations that support and maintain operations but do not actually run the trains, in this case by the boilermakers and machinists, as well as track section maintenance workers, clerks, and telegraph operators, as opposed to the engineers, firemen, or conductors who didn't strike. Divisions among the unions on how to respond to provocations and contract disputes also join the list, along with rapid fizzling of public interest, let alone public support, and as usual, which we'll talk about extensively, the newspapers largely backed the owners and customers of the railroads over the railroad workers. So why are we talking about that this week? Well, of course, with the lingering threat as we record this episode on November 20th, 2022, of a nationwide rail strike by several different unions, 
This history is a reminder of the importance of obtaining the solidarity of all the different occupations within the industry before undertaking a strike. It is also a reminder that the size and scale of walkouts is not alone a guarantee of success. We will know more tomorrow about what is coming down the line when the engineers and conductors release the vote tallies of their members on the proposed contracts. The boilermakers, signalmen, and maintenance of way workers have already rejected contracts, but seven other unions have voted to accept new contracts. And that's according to the Trains.com Newswire. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about the background, though, of the 1886 strike? This did not come out of nowhere, and as we'll talk about, came at a period of uh, a great deal of fairly widespread industrial action at the time. Yeah. So uh, 1885 was a pretty active year um, in in labor. Um, there were a lot of strike actions, a lot of labor unrest against Jay Gould and his his railroads. And one of the major events of 1885 was the Wabash Line Strike. And um, so this was a previous clash between the Knights of Labor and Jay Gould. And the Knights of Labor shut down the entire Wabash Line after Gould fires the Knights of Labor shipmen. And the union's members on other railways refused to run any trains that carried Wabash cars. And this stoppage uh, forced Gould to the bargaining table and he agreed to stop discriminating against Knights of Labor members. And in exchange, the union president, Terrence B. Powderly, called off the strike and promised no further walkouts without labor management discussions. And another part of the agreement was that, quote, no man should be discharged without due notice and investigation, end quote. And uh, I think, as we'll, we'll discuss later or throughout this episode, this was kind of a tactical maneuver on Gould's part. He was just kind of keeping his powder dry for a situation such as the 1886 uh, strike. And so he he was just kind of agreeing to these uh, Knights of Labor demands. However, this labor victory of 1885 excited the workers and increased Knights of Labor membership from about 100,000 to over 700,000 over the next year. However, Gould didn't really keep his end of the bargain, and he continued to discriminate against union members and routinely cut wages without notice. Um, one Arkansas knight said that he was forced to work 13 hours for only 10 hours of pay, and his wages decreased from $1.50 to $1.25 per day. And this mistreatment of knights continued, and it culminated in the firing of a Marshall, Texas union leader named Charles A. Hall, and he was fired for attending a union meeting on company time. Uh, this led Martin Irons of District Assembly 101 of the Knights to call for a strike starting on March 6, 1886. And within a week, more than 200,000 workers went on strike in five states, Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, and Texas. And on March 8th, a St. Louis dispatch, uh, post-dispatch headline read, quote, traffic throttled the Gould system at the mercy of the Knights of Labor. So here's uh, just a little bit of background and setting the scene for what took place during this strike. So as we said, this is going to follow a pretty typical arc here. As you can tell, this was uh, sort of sparked by a local incident. Obviously, there had been a lot of mounting grievances over the previous year, uh, and so it wasn't one particular thing, but this happened to be the inciting incident, was that this guy gets fired. And this happens in the, in the town of Marshall in Texas, which was a major rail hub. And it, it was especially important to the Texas and Pacific, but it was also where a number of the railroads met. And as you can tell, this wasn't like a nationally called strike, and it wasn't necessarily particularly well prepared for either. 
it was more sort of locally started and then kind of everyone just started walking off, at least if they were Knights of Labor people. Um, remember, this is going to become very important and significant to this. There were a bunch of unions working on the railroad industry at the time and these specific railroads, and not all of the unions uh, were part of this action, uh, and not all of them walked off the job. Now, we went through a very extensive set of newspaper clippings from the time period that are available as scans online today. And these came from the Fort Worth Daily Gazette, the Marshall Messenger, the St. Louis Globe Democrat, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Parsons Weekly Sun in Kansas, and so on. Now, one thing we always try to emphasize when we're talking about strikes, especially from this period, and definitely about railroad strikes, even as far as like the 1920s, which we've covered, uh, when you're talking about these articles, you have to take everything with a huge grain of salt, right? They're releasing multiple editions a day. Sometimes they're just kind of filling column inches, uh, but a lot of times they're explicitly hostile to the workers, although it's going to be interesting that you'll see that some of the coverage that we'll be reading from is actually quite favorable to the workers, uh, at least at the beginning, right? And it seems like there was relatively decent sympathy at the beginning of the strike by the general public. And there wasn't necessarily some huge turn. I mean, they weren't necessarily happy with how some of the violence played out eventually. Uh, and, you know, as with most of these things, there's a lot of serious questions as to whether or not the violence was really by the union or by, you know, more like the strike breakers or uh, Pinkerton agents creating provocations, things like that. There's definitely plenty of evidence for that. Um, but it was more just that, you know, if you can't keep up the momentum, uh, the public opinion is just going to kind of lose interest. Um, and that is, I think, to a great degree what happened here. Uh, and, you know, gradually there are economic effects and hardships and there's more people with more money being lost that want the strike to be over and they get frustrated. And that's the kind of thing that we'll be hearing as we go through some of these clippings. So let's talk about some of the notes that we gathered from these articles uh, that tell a little bit about the story. So remember, this basically kicks off uh, on March 1st, and uh, we'll start off with the uh, March 4th Fort Worth Gazette. So although many knights took part in the strike, their demands weren't really clear to the public. And the March 4th edition of the Fort Worth Gazette uh, had an article that tried to ascertain the causes of the strike. Now, it was heavily implied in this article that the Knights of Labor uh, were secretive and mysterious and that non-members could only guess at the causes of their grievances and the decision to walk off the job. Uh, but the Knights of Labor's local does provide some indication of the causes of the strike, and they mention explicitly uh, the use of convict labor and Chinese labor, and that's something we're going to talk more about as we proceed here. Uh, I think it is really probably key here as well uh, for this how this strike played out that Gould was no longer officially in charge of the Texas and Pacific, but the workers and the media were treating it as if he were, as if it was part of the Gould system. This this dynamic basically allowed the federal receivers to act like they had nothing to do with what was going on in the Gould system and had been unjustly targeted for no reason. This is essentially a divide and conquer strategy. However, uh, this is just simply not the case, right? Um, for example, the one of the federal receivers, uh, as I think I'll mention later, was a uh, had been the general counsel, like the in-house counsel for Jay Gould himself previously. So obviously very close ties and the, the systems themselves were closely linked up until the previous year had operated as one railroad more or less and were sort of 
uh, inextricable in that way. So the fact that it was in receivership and Gould was nominally no longer in management, even though he was still the largest shareholder, was a little bit of a fudge. And this uh, was, you know, it was treated as being part of the Gould system by the media and by the strikers themselves. Uh, but obviously they were able to act with some degree of independence from each other uh, in the courts and so forth. The article also mentions that there had very recently been significant rainfall in some parts of Texas right before the strike that had weakened the condition of the tracks. Um, I don't know for sure what implications this has, but I could guess and speculate that this might be relevant when we're uh, evaluating some of the later allegations of track sabotage that come up. And it might also explain the timing of the walkouts by some of the workers, because maybe they realized that their work was urgently needed for track maintenance, and that was a good opportunity. Um, further Fort Worth Gazette articles aren't any more sympathetic to the strikers. On March 12, 1886, they featured a range of editorial clippings from around the country, largely quite hostile to the strike, and it reminded me, especially the part from the New York Post, about the business community's fear of an impending socialist revolution that this strike occurred just before and actually ended the day of the Haymarket bombing in Chicago. Another item in this page is the trade assembly, the trades assembly of St. Louis endorsing this strike, although I'm not sure if they took further action beyond endorsement. And another item lists the demands from Martin Irons, the aforementioned local leader uh, of the Knights of Labor. And although various demands were made there, and there are several very interesting ones, and uh, these include, as I said earlier, the uh, ending the use of convict labor by railroads which I'm imagining reflects a concern over the growing practice of convict labor use in the post-Reconstruction era, uh, especially in the South, but we've actually done an episode on the use of convict labor in the North as well in the 19th century, so that's important to remember that this was not exclusively used by the South, but certainly in this period definitely was. Uh, they also, uh, interestingly, asked for more leave time for railroad workers to go home and see their families if they were working far away. This sounds very familiar to the present-day complaints, in the ongoing dispute that we talked about earlier uh, that's happening right now in 2022 with the railroads and their workers. They also asked for equal pay for equal work. Now, later generations, that would usually be referring to the gender gap, but I'm assuming here this has a racial dimension in the context of the 1886 strike. Something that Rachel's going to talk about is obviously, as with anywhere in the South, you get the black-white racial dynamics, which the Knights of Labor were trying to bridge to some degree, and they had black members in leadership and things like that, and that was pretty unusual. But uh, as I said earlier, there is a specific demand repeated throughout about the use of Chinese laborers. And uh, I have to assume that that is also part of this uh, context here of, of demanding equal pay for equal work, um, because they were concerned that they were being undermined by the employment of Chinese laborers on the railroads for less pay. Um, and we can talk about that as well. Uh, I also noticed in this article and some of the other ones that passenger trains were mostly still running without interference, and U.S. mail trains were almost always running without interference as long as the track was undamaged. And I don't know if these were strategic choices to tamp down public backlash and avoid harsher federal intervention, or if the, these were just operational reasons that factored into that decision, and maybe the strikers were not really involved with those trains anyway. But on March 18th, uh, this is now progressing, you know, 18 days into the strike. The Fort Worth Gazette listed a whole range of incidents of sabotage action denied by the Knights. These often included 
um, potential damage to the track, potentially messing up some of the parts in the shops if they keep the locomotives from working. And uh, the, the most common thing that was mentioned right from the beginning was the uh, what they called killing a locomotive, which was not the same as disabling a locomotive. It just meant that they would... Um, put out the fire and not have enough water on hand. Uh, and so the locomotives would cool down and no longer be operational immediately. So you'd have to spend hours and hours and hours restarting a fire, building it up, getting ahead of steam with the water resupplied and so forth in order to be able to move it anywhere. And so that could potentially add significant delays. And so by just letting these fires go out, that was a huge hardship to the railroad. So that was a common strategy. Um, but again, the more sort of quote unquote extreme sabotage actions were pretty much all denied by the Knights. And I think you can ask what, how much they were inflated by the newspaper and the railroads, um, or maybe they were Pinkerton actions or whatever. In some cases, some of the local authorities said there wasn't actually anything happening when the railroads claimed there were, you know, violent incidents happening. Um, so that's something to bear in mind as well. Uh, the Gazette also had a list of resolutions and letters from the local petty bourgeoisie, mostly denouncing the strike and labor's, quote, dictation, end quote, of how businesses ought to be run. Uh, also, in one case, a guy acting as a deputy U.S. marshal was arrested and convicted for possession of a pistol in confronting the strikers, which surprised me because apparently that wasn't allowed at the time. I don't know. You know, today it sounds like it would be. And uh, supposedly some of the jury and the justice of the peace were Knights of Labor members, and that was supposed to explain why this guy got convicted. But there were definitely incidents all over the place where somebody acting on behalf of the railroads or their interests uh, did something they weren't supposed to do or actually killed someone uh, in, in some cases, not in that particular case. Uh, interestingly, most of the reports from various towns in the region simply say that everything was quiet and uneventful. That was true if you look at the articles from way back at the beginning of the strike, and it remained true uh, several weeks into the strike as well. Uh, the Gazette in Fort Worth does quote the unhinged, as usual, New York Times, insisting that the obstinate and tyrannical Knights of Labor is poisoning drinking water, etc., etc. That's all obviously untrue. And there's an interesting line from one of the railroads saying they will only entertain wage increase requests from employees themselves to their immediate supervisors, not from the Knights of Labor to the company. And that really foreshadows a lot of the approach to union busting in this country, which is just to repeat over and over again that any individual is welcome to come ask for a raise, but you shouldn't have the union in between you uh, asking on your behalf, uh, which, of course, is a very unfair power dynamic. <laughs> Uh, on March 26th, the Gazette re reprinted an entire Knights of Labor local resolution, which is helpful for understanding their perspective. But again, there's a few things in there to zero in on. First, uh, despite the other successes with black and white organizing within the Knights of Labor, they clearly reject Chinese workers and do not extend that same solidarity and clearly weren't trying to organize those folks. I don't know if that was a language thing or what, but obviously we know there's a huge context uh, around anti-Chinese sentiment building up in the 1880s. And apparently uh, these Chinese workers were especially used in very remote parts of West Texas, uh, according to an article that I read from March 4th. This was an area that was extremely rural, uh, had very low population. Usually people were extremely cut off from wherever they actually lived while they were on shift. And the railroads were contending, and obviously take this with a grain of salt, that 
no one wants to work anymore. We can't find enough white workers, etc. And so they were hiring Chinese laborers for that reason. Again, I wouldn't take that at face value, but that's the context of this uh, point of contention here. And uh, there's a very long, juicy section that I'm going to read from in this resolution from the local Knights of Labor, uh, basically responding to all of the epithets that the media has been using against the Knights of Labor, including calling them communists. So I'll read from that and then uh, hand it off to Rachel for more coverage from the local media at the time. So this is from point five of the resolution. The Knights of Labor, as is usually the case when working classes demand their just rights, have been from the first outrageously misrepresented to the people. They have been held up as forerunners of communism. They have been represented as murderers, destroyers of property, train wreckers, etc. Every possible effort has been made on the part of the railroad to cause the people to rise in their might and crush out every opposition that tends to hold in check that which will give the power into the hands of a few and to bring about a state of affairs detrimental to the masses of the people. Texas has over 47,000 nights of labor within her borders. Not exceeding one-fifth of this number is in the employ of the railroads in the state. The remaining four-fifths are merchants, mechanics, teachers, doctors, ministers, and other eligible professions. No order in existence can show more able talent, yet croakers who know not what they are saying, nor to whom they are talking, will in their egotistical foreseeing wisdom blackmail the efforts of their best friends who have made them what they are and upon whom they are now dependent for future prosperity. They prefer to take issue with a grinding syndicate that would pauperize this country rather than aid a struggling friend risking his all to avert the coming calamity. Such men will at some future time see their mistake and regret the past. The day of reckoning with pooled corporations is at hand. Never in the annals of history was there such an awakening to the mighty effort to stamp out by the organized capitalists of the laboring man's interests. Never was there such a demand for labor to organize for protection only. It must be done and let every labor union come to the front and throw its power into the scale of justice for a common good. Make one sure victory and arbitrate that which no man with a just cause can refuse will forever reign supreme. And a lot of that is rhetorically quite similar to what we then see decades later in the strike on the Harriman system lines, some of which were actually the same railroads, I think, or at least nearby. And, um, you know, there's this sort of, after it's been going for almost a month, there's this sort of a grand appeal to try to get more unions and more workers to walk out. Because at the beginning of the strike, they thought this might spread, right? That you might get this contagion to other nearby railroads, even if they weren't Gould system railroads, that, you know, the Louisville and Nashville, well, that comes nearby and they have, you know, traffic that crosses between them. So maybe they'll go on strike or the Santa Fe links up here. Maybe they'll go on strike and so forth. And that didn't really transpire. Um, and that's the same thing we saw with the later strikes that we've done episodes on previously as well. This sort of attempt to, as the steam is running out, pun intended, to try to get more workers on board elsewhere, and that doesn't really materialize, thus sort of dooming the strike. Of course, the sort of strange thing here is that almost everyone thought the strike was going to wind down by the end of March in a like favorable manner, or at least some sort of compromise resolution. And instead it continues all the way till May 4th, which is a little bit perplexing um, because, you know, the business community and the newspapers and the striking men themselves all thought this was coming to a resolution. And I guess they got weighted out basically. Um, and they weren't expecting that. And uh, that is sort of how 
things fell apart, essentially. Um, so, Rachel, I know you wanted to talk more about some of the other articles covering this uh, strike. Yeah. So in contrast to the Fort Worth Gazette, uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch had a much more even-handed view of the strike, um, even, I would say, somewhat sympathetic. Uh, so in the early days and weeks of the strike, they had somewhat neutral to positive coverage. So on March 11th, um, in the afternoon edition, they reported a complete standstill on the Missouri Pacific that day, despite efforts by the railroad to, to resume operations. Uh, their account said the brakemen defected to the strikers and refused to touch cars. Uh, firemen weren't officially on strike as a union, but some individuals refused to work. Um, engineers did not back the strike, but were also working to rule it would not do more than contractually required to cover other people's usual tasks. Um, it was emphasized that the cooperation of the engineers was going to be make or break for the strikers. Uh, the paper also observed many times that the Knights of Labor were calm and peaceful and well-organized to maintain their own discipline without the need for law enforcement intervention on the scene of any strike action. Uh, ferry companies and wagon renters did a big business moving goods across the river into St. Louis when rail traffic on the bridges stopped and storage space ran out in and around rail yards. The March 12th uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch Afternoon Edition extensively covered the use of police to both guard and actually operate Missouri Pacific equipment in St. Louis. In some instances, they even stoked the fires and rang the bell themselves. Uh, the workers were very unhappy about this. Um, a conductor was crushed to death when he slipped while helping to switch cars in a rail yard in place of the usual workers. It was also reported that many Teamsters hired to carry goods by horse car in place of rail service were overloading their wagons and their poor horses to such a degree that a Humane Society official was dispatched to stand watch by one of the road bridges to monitor it for the welfare of the horses passing by. Uh, this edition of the paper also explained the Knights of Labor's favorite tactic of simply walking up to a locomotive and politely asking the crew to stop working, which sometimes worked and sometimes did not. Uh, the employees of a shoe factory also pooled together $20 at 25 cents each to send in solidarity to the striking railroad workers and sign their names in a letter to the editor, which was very cool because it was a broad group of factory workers, including both men and women. And um, an anonymous Knights of Labor member also told the newspaper reporter that it is unfair to consider the Texas and Pacific as being disconnected from the Gould system because of its receivership status, considering that the receiver used to be the in-house counsel for Gould and that the receivership was a maneuver to try to break contracts with the workers, which would probably not be taken seriously for other creditors owed payments for services. So they were reporting on the solidarity of fellow workers at the shoe factory. So I think the fact that St. Louis is definitely showing a bit more sympathy towards the workers as opposed to the Fort Worth Gazette, which was just kind of railing on on the work on the Knights of Labor, as well as as talking to the petty bourgeoisie, as opposed to talking to these fellow workers that were standing in solidarity with the with the uh, Knights of Labor. So just very different coverage. The March 15th afternoon edition reported on the railroad's strategy of seeking legal injunctions against the strikers in every county court across the system where there is a rail yard or shop. Uh, there was another donation of support to the strikers from a marble mantle and great company's workers and from a second shoe company's workers. Uh, $50 was donated by the Father Matthew Young Men's Total Abstinence and Benevolent Society, and they said in a statement that, quote, 
An injury to one is an injury to all, end quote. And uh, significantly, many employees of the Post-Dispatch newspaper itself also donated money, adding up to $31.50. So obviously that's kind of where their coverage is coming from. Uh, the workers themselves at the paper were, were sympathetic to the strike and um, contributed to, to the strike fund. On March 29th, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch very optimistically claimed the strike was over due to Missouri Pacific recognition of the union and agreement to arbitration and that this would be the last big railroad strike in U.S. history. Obviously, neither of these points proved to be true. Um, they also praised the quote-unquote conservative influence of the Knights of Labor in preventing things from getting out of hand or becoming violent and credited this far more than any law enforcement threats or presence. The article praised both the Knights and the St. Louis police for maintaining order, and they also favorably compared the situation to some ongoing unrest and violence in Belgium that was apparently making waves in the U.S. that week. Um, that was the Belgian strike of 1886, a.k.a. the Social Revolt of 1886. Um, we're not really going to go into that in this episode, but apparently the U.S. Uh, was somewhat... Uh, less violent, more peaceful, and that was a positive uh, point of comparison. So very different coverages happening um, in the various papers. But like like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said, um, it was very make or break that the Knights of Labor should get support from other unions, and that just didn't happen. So in contrast to previous disputes between the Knights of Labor and Gould, other railroad unions did not support the strike. Uh, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen refused to honor the strike, and its members continued working. Uh, furthermore, Gould immediately hired strikebreakers and Pinkerton detectives. The strikers quickly turned to sabotage to stop work. They assaulted and disabled moving trains. They sent threatening notes and visits uh, to working engineers, and they set arson fires in yards. In one notable incident, a crowd of 600 knights and sympathizers in DeSoto, Missouri, marched on the roundhouse to drain the locomotive's boilers. Um, another tactic, as Bill mentioned earlier, uh, was to let steam locomotives go cold, and it would take hours, up to six hours, for the railroad to reheat the engines again for use. So as the strike just kind of continued on and on and just kind of dragged out into, into April and May, um, any sympathy and goodwill that the public had towards the strikers dissipated with the escalating violence. Quoting from uh, the Encyclopedia of Arkansas the article about this strike, Law and order leagues organized in town after town in an effort to restore freight traffic and social stability, including in Texarkana, where a committee of citizens, quote unquote, retook the shops in late March. Against the wishes of the National Knights leadership, a number of knights, including Martin Irons, the strike's chief organizer, pushed for the strike's expansion nationally and advocated, it seems, the use of violence against strikebreakers. Bloody clashes between pro-strike crowds and company hired deputies in Fort Worth, Texas, East St. Louis, Illinois, and elsewhere left at least nine dead and dozens wounded. Strikers exchanged heavy fire with deputies outside of Little Rock in mid-March after commandeering an engine, and again on April 8th when 40 to 75 knights approached deputies guarding the shops and demanded that they leave. Now, it's important to remember as well, like Rachel said, as we're talking about the dissipation of public support as this goes on and things escalate, this is happening uh, basically less than a decade, a little bit less than a decade after the great 
railroad strike of 1877, which was the first nationwide rail strike. It kicked off basically in Pittsburgh. We've done a whole episode on that. We will, as always, link that in the show notes at arsenalfordemocracy.com when this episode goes up. But that is an important context for the public understanding of this. And it is referred to in various news articles. You know, is this going to spread? Is it going to take, you know, more railroads, not just these Gould system railroads? And uh, and really only, you know, two of the Gould system railroads were the primary ones affected here. And it did not end up spreading, but the union was trying to get it to spread further because that they felt was their best chance of success. And that is not what ended up transpiring. Uh, There was one particularly notorious and inflammatory incident that really, I think, probably brought the strike to a bitter end there um, in terms of any chance of public support. And, you know, again, who knows the exact causes of what happened? But at the time, the allegation was that strikers had caused this to happen. Therefore, they get affected with that in public perception. So on April 26th, a sabotaged freight train was derailed near Wyandotte, Kansas, burying two non-striking crew members in the wreckage and mud from the Kaw River. An article on April 29th in the Parsons Weekly Sun newspaper in Kansas reported on the wreck, and it's fairly grim, so I'm not going to read from it. It's an extremely gruesome account of this wreck and what happened to the people that were injured or killed in it. And the same newspaper also reports on President Cleveland's address to Congress regarding labor disputes. Uh, He was at the time in the middle of his first term. Most listeners will probably recall that he was the president in his second and non-consecutive term during the Pullman strike of 1894 when he used federal troops to intervene. Uh, But in this 1886 message to Congress, he suggested the creation of a federal arbitration commission to try to resolve these types of labor relations problems. Such a commission would have automatic jurisdiction in disputes involving interstate commerce, but could also be requested to intervene by state governments for disputes involving only a single state under the clause in Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution that allows states to apply for federal help in protecting them against incidents of quote-unquote domestic violence, meaning localized insurrection or riots. Um, But the same page reports as well that the U.S. Census Bureau Uh, in his administration, and I don't know what point they started this, had at some point begun tracking labor disputes to make an accounting of the number, size, and causes. That's what Rachel was talking about earlier when we're saying that 1885, the previous year, had been an active year uh, for strikes. Of the more than 800 recorded strikes or lockouts in the United States in 1885, and they were nearly all strikes, not lockouts, more than 500 had been over disputes in wage levels, Um, Although I think it's telling that very few of them were, uh, unlike in 1877, very few of those disputes were over uh, an employer's attempt to lower the wages. There were some of those, but the vast majority of them were attempts to raise the wages proactively by the unions. Uh, Strikes also focused on working hours, and these ones tended to succeed. Strikes that focused on operational rules tended to fail which is kind of interesting because a lot of the coverage that was pretty hysterical about this strike at the beginning when it you know, first kicked off, uh, when, the, when the coverage was arguably the most sympathetic in 1886, was basically contending that, like, this was it. It's all downhill from here if we let them win. We got to keep an eye on this because, you know, they're trying to control uh, how your business is run. And so you need to pay attention to that. That's the kind of uh, 
coverage that that we're seeing. And in, in fact, this U.S. Census report indicates that strikes that were about how to operate workplaces tended to not do particularly well. Indeed, the March 9th St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, which also you know quoted from various other newspapers, as most of the newspapers of the time tended to do, uh, they called the battle between the workers and the railroads a test case for the broader country on the quote-unquote relative position of labor and capital. Uh, and the page got into various arcane details about the uh, ownerships and managements of the railroads in this particular case uh, of the 1886 strike in, in these several states, but um, the, the overall viewpoint here uh, was that this had the potential to either spread itself or their example, if they prevailed, would spread all over the rest of the country, which of course makes sense given the rapid growth the previous year in the Knights of Labor membership. But, uh, Rachel, it didn't pan out that way, did it? Uh, this is not a good outcome for the Knights of Labor when it sort of fizzles out around May 4th. No. So, quoting from the Wikipedia article about the strike, um, after these incidents, the escalating violence between the strikers and the strike breakers, uh, Gould requested military assistance from the governors of the affected states. Uh, the governor of Missouri mobilized the state militia. The governor of Texas mobilized both the state militia and the Texas Rangers. Uh, however, the governor of Kansas refused after local officials reported no incidents of violence, despite claims by railway executives that mobs had seized control of trains and rail yards were burning. The exercise of state police power on behalf of the railways led union members to retaliate. As the violence spread, public opinion turned against the workers. The physical attacks by the Pinkerton agents scared thousands of workers into returning to work, and the strike was officially called off on May 4th. So it definitely ended with a whimper, not a bang, and the Knights of Labor didn't really uh, get what they wanted at all. And notable here that it did require pretty significant use of force by the Pinkerton agents to get people back to work, because actually a lot of the articles from the early part of the strike, the first couple weeks or so, emphasize over and over again that of the unions that were participating, so not talking about the unions that weren't participating in the strike at all, where it was more of an individual decision, of the ones that were participating, almost everybody, if not everybody, just did not come to work, right? And in some cases, you could argue they were locked out, uh, there were definitely people who weren't even really part of the strike who got let go uh, for the duration of the strike, you know, whether they wanted to or not. Um, but when we're talking about the Knights of Labor members themselves, they were very strong for those opening weeks in terms of not just uh, refusing to go on strike and not going back to work. Uh, this was emphasized throughout the coverage, at least from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which, as we said, had more favorable coverage. By the end, the Pinkertons are physically attacking people to an extent that people are afraid not to go back to work. One of the other interesting features of this strike is that in some cases we've talked about strikes where they hired enough replacement workers to fill all the spots and then just kept them on permanently. That does not seem to have been the case here. They really struggled in a lot of cases to find enough people to run the trains uh, successfully and, and maintain the trains on the tracks successfully. Um, even though these were quote unquote unskilled jobs that were the ones that were on strike as opposed to the skilled engineers and so forth. And I think that's telling that they then had to deploy pretty significant force to sort of terrorize people into getting back on the job because it wasn't the case where they could just lay off everybody permanently and hire replacements and move on and not look back. Um, but the aftermath of the strike, Rachel, was pretty bleak. Yeah. 
Um, so there was some good that came out of it. Um, quoting from the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, um, the Knights defeat notwithstanding, the struggles of 1885 and 1886 produced a biracial alliance among both black and white Gould system railroaders. While fragile and limited, it drew on workers' common hostility to monopoly, labor exploitation, and the employment of Chinese and convict laborers, sentiments also shared by the mass of urban workers and farming people across the region. In Little Rock, many black knights and a number of white knights, particularly the knights' state organizer, Dan Thompson, allied in July 1886 to support a strike by black cotton pickers, reputedly led by Hugh Gill, outside the city. White and black knights went on to do significant work in such populist groups as the Agricultural Wheel and the Union Labor Party in the mid and late 1880s. However, for the Knights of Labor as an organization, this defeat was a heavy blow. Um, it, it led management uh, to learn the lesson that they could just stonewall and drag out the strike and also call for government uh, militias and federal marshals to, to successfully break strikes. So they could just drag these strikes out for as long as possible, and eventually they would win and defeat the, the uh, unions. Um, this defeat, along with the unsuccessful strike by the Knights of Labor in Thibodeau, Louisiana in 1887, which will be a topic for a future episode, was the beginning of the decline of the Knights of Labor. By 1890, membership in the Knights of Labor cratered, falling by 90%. Uh, this led Samuel Gompers of the Cigar Makers Union and Peter J. McGuire of the Carpenters Union, along with other labor leaders, to organize and create uh, what they saw as a more effective labor organization, an alliance of trade unions. And so on December 8, uh, 1886, they and a few other delegates met in Columbus, Ohio, and they created the American Federation of Labor. So, Rachel, any closing thoughts on this? I know we've covered this strike in a pretty serious amount of detail, but any overall themes or takeaways as we ponder the possibility of a coming rail strike in 2022 or 2023? So I think one of the main themes was that you have to bring everybody on board. And so, like you said, it's you have to bring the different uh uh, trade unions together. Um, it's, it can't just be a certain faction of railroad railroad workers. It has to be many different um, unions coming together to create that united front that really helps create that success. So yeah, I think that's the huge aspect that's, that's really important. Like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said, it's make or break as to whether a strike will be successful or not. By the time you're listening to this, we'll already know which way the conductors union and, and the uh, engineers union has voted. So not going to speculate on that. But uh, if there is going to be a strike, and it would be pretty unusual if there, if there were, but it might happen, it, the chances of success are really going to depend on, I mean, obviously there's an extent to which there's federal intervention now baked into the process in a way that didn't used to be the case, but it's going to really depend on whether or not they got all the real big super skilled unions involved, not just some of the smaller ones. If the people who are actually running the trains long distance are part of the strike, it might have a shot at prevailing and forcing concessions. If it's just the people who do the maintenance, even though that's really important, well, Companies love deferring maintenance. That's all I can say about that. So keep your ears open. Keep your eyes out. Good luck to all the workers in their current struggle. They really need those concessions, as we talked about on our recent episode, talking about all the 
challenges facing the rail workers right now. Thanks for coming on this week, Rachel. Yeah, thanks for having me.